Hey, folks, we just want you to know that all the views and opinions expressed on Military Historians or People Too are ours and that of our guests. They do not represent any organizations, employers, and other entities with which we and our guests may be affiliated or associated. Okay? Enjoy the show. I, I'd love to see Coco win, obviously. Yeah, me too. But but, but I, I think Sabalenka is just she's pretty amazing. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I like I said, and 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 it's not a sexist thing. I mean, yeah, I can rattle off Chris Everett and and Pam Shriver. You know, they really need to go away. Um, yeah. But Brad Gilbert needs to go away. Yeah. And so does Cliff Drysdale. I mean, that guy needs to go away. I mean, he I don't he, they just. And I also think it's unethical that they allow these, you talk about conflicts of interest. Yeah. You know, they're coaching players, yet they're still allowed to announce. Right. Yeah, right? it isn't. Yeah. And that's insane. They, they shouldn't be, be allowed to do that. Anyway. Hi, Joy. <laughs> Joy, I hello. Mean, who's coaching players that they shouldn't be allowed to do and so forth? That sounds great. Uh, we're, 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 we are complaining about uh, ESPN's coverage of the U.S. Open tennis. Um, is as is our want. Uh, we, yeah. like, we like to, to, to pick at those things. Uh, the, the the announcers are getting more and more difficult to to listen to. It's almost to the point where sometimes I just turn the volume off completely and you know watch it in silence. Uh, yeah, because it's just got so what's irritating so, and so, so annoying. What, what are they doing so bad? Oh, it's just it, it's all these these cliche comments um, and and. You know they they are they are they're they're very much into being Captain Obvious. Yeah, uh, that's for sure. You know, yeah. it's like, well, no kidding, right? Well, she she's gonna really have to get her serve under control if she wants to win this match. Yeah, like, well, no kidding, right? <laughs> yeah. Or or this delay. Oh my gosh, they need to get their head in the right place because Bob, you know, all that. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. They're professionals. They know yeah. how to do this, right? They they're used to doing this. But that guy like glued his feet to the floor. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, was an it was an environmental protest, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But even throughout that whole thing, I mean, you can see it on the TV screen and you're like, I can see what's going on. But for some reason, they can't, the, the announcers can't seem to figure it out. Yeah. That, that it's just a mystery to what, what's happening. I don't know. It was, it was maddening. Um, There's only one thing for it. You need to re-record something and send the tape into them and say, "Look what Bill Allison can do." Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to solve this problem. Uh, oh, that! Uh, well done. Okay, I can tell yeah. we're, we're going to get along. Good. We're going to have a nice chat. I, yeah. This this is already boding well. This is already boding. <laughs> Joey, it's nice to meet you. Uh, yeah. Thank you for for taking the time and everything for 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 joining us today. Um, any shout outs, Brian? I I think for me, um, just for our listeners, I have figured out how to put brief video teaser clips uh, on Instagram and and Twitter. But anyway, yeah, started doing that. So it seems to, to get to get some good good feedback and response on that. Uh, let's see what else. The tennis is going on, complaining about the announcers. Uh, I guess that's a good shout out, right? That I'm grumpy and 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 not not happy with that. Um, but I'm still going to watch, right? Yeah. And uh, we're getting our new kitchen door into next week. That's going to be installed. We got the door. The guy came by yesterday, checked everything out. Everything's good. So. We're going to get our new, really cool, mid-century, modern-looking kitchen door put in. 
Nice. So the kitchen, all that will be done, done, done. Right? I got, I've got one shout out to Joy's glasses. I love them. Those are, those are great glasses. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, once you get to a certain age, you, you start doing crazy stuff, you know, like, like, <laughs> like bizarre glasses. Cause you think, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> right. No, they, I, I really do like them. They, they, uh, they're, they're very nice. So they're, yeah, that's what it. You call them? Statement glasses. Yeah, there you go. Are they purple? Are those like a little purple hue to them? I can't tell. Yeah. I let other people make all these choices for me. I'm one of these women that devolves everything to professional. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I go into boutiques. I have a good friend and I say, get me an outfit for this. And she does it and I don't think about it. <laughs> Same with cars. I never care what the mechanics do. And I just say, fix that. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like good it. Good stuff. I like it. So, Brian, why don't you go ahead and introduce Joy? All right. So today uh, we are with Dr. Joy Porter. Uh, Joy is professor of indigenous and environmental history at the University of Hull. She is a principal principal investigator of the Treated Spaces Research Group and a Labor Home Major Research Fellow as well. Joy is uh, PI of the AHRC Standard Research Grant Brightening the Covenant Chain, Revealing Cultures of Diplomacy Between the Iroquois and the British Crown. Um, and that one's been going since 2021 and will run through next year. Uh, Joy was a Fulbright Scholar at Dartmouth College, and she has also held visiting professorships at the University of Paris and the Clinton Institute in Dublin. She started her career as a senior lecturer at, and uh, you, Joy, please correct me if I don't say this correctly, um, Anglia Ruskin. Yep. Anglia, okay, Anglia Ruskin University. And uh, she also spent eight years as a senior lecturer and associate dean at Swansea University. Joy was educated at the University of Nottingham, where she received her MA and PhD. Joy has produced more than 38 publications, including the monograph, So the Making of Frank Pruitt. Um, that one came out with Bloomsbury in 2021. Her other monographs are Native American Environmentalism with Nebraska in 2014. Native American Indian Freemasonry, Associationalism, and Performance <laughs> in America, uh, also done with Nebraska in 2011, uh, and To Be Indian, The Life of Seneca Iroquois Arthur Caswell Parker. And Oklahoma did that one back in uh, 20, or in 2001, and it won an out Outstanding Academic Title Award from the American Library Association's Choice Magazine. Joy also won the 2006 Writer of the Year Award from the Wordcraft Circle of Native American Writers, uh, and that was for the work she did on the Cambridge Companion to Native American Literature. Joy's forthcoming book is titled Canada's Green Challenge, and that will be published, uh, I think, in 2024 with Queen's McGill University Press. Is that right? So they tell me. Okay. Yeah, we're going to trust them. She's just trusting um, that they're yeah. going to do it and fix it just like her car. And then, yeah, it's going to come yeah. out in 2024, right? Uh, Joy is lead editor of the Cambridge University Press book series, Elements in Indigenous Environmental Research. And aside from all of her academic accomplishments, she is an outstanding uh, teacher. Uh, in 2014, she was a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy and a national teaching fellow in 2018. Uh, Joy, really happy that uh, that you were able to join us today. Welcome. It's a real honor to meet you both. I think your podcast fantastic and a brilliant idea. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Love hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have to start off by saying that, Joy, you do a really good job of not having much of a an online presence as far as your personal life goes. 
Yeah, I, that, that's true. You know, it's very uh, perspicacious that you spotted that because I am a very <laughs> private person. You know, okay. you can, you, that's true. I've deliberately done that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to come up with uh, with with questions for the rapid fire part at the end because you just didn't you don't leave any trail. You know, you've got lots of academic sites, um, which must be a pain to to maintain all of those. <laughs> but when it comes to your personal life, there's not much out there. So, yeah. um, well, so you you're, think I was a spy or something? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if you <laughs> does she really exist? Yeah, does she really yeah. exist. Yeah. So you're you're going to have to fill in these gaps, and let's start by uh, having you tell us where you're from, uh, you know, what your parents did, and then uh, how you got into history. Oh, I'm from an enormous stately home in Surrey, leafy Surrey, and uh, from a very distinguished family, and uh, grew up with an enormous trust fund, yeah. and uh, made my way to Oxford, and I've stayed there ever since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I was able to uh, to find a little something that suggested that you were actually from Northern Ireland. <laughs> yeah, the truth is that I grew up in a war, the Troubles. Yeah. Um, I was born towards the end of 1967, and the Troubles were just beginning. I didn't start them, honest. And uh, <laughs> and uh, that lasted till about 1998. So I grew up in contested occupied territory as it were in the middle of civil rights protests and heavy sectarian strife and pretty poor you could say my parents left school very early there were no books in the house we didn't have um indoor plumbing till i was about eight. Oh wow uh i walked about Five mile round trip to school every day from the age of about four. Um, so the reason probably I don't talk about myself is that uh, it's it's quite the story. And actually, I have a memoir that I'm working on, and that people keep telling me I should show to a, an agent. But yeah, you know, it's quite an exceptional story, and um, it's not conventional. So that's why I don't. So tell where them. where at specifically? We're, we're a city, town, what? Dairy, it's where the trouble okay. began. Oh, okay, yeah. Dairy, dairy, yeah. So it depends if you say if you call it London Dairy, you're from one side of the sectarian divide. Mm -hmm. If you call it dairy, you're harking back to the ancient Gaelic dura, meaning oak grove, which is the kind of a person who's more into the United Ireland idea. My mother was Catholic from Southern Ireland politically. And my father was Protestant. So that's, if you know anything about Irish history and the troubles, that's yeah. quite a thing. Yep. So you so, had, you you are an orange-green mixture. Uh, yeah, I'm someone who doesn't really believe that um, those are the only colors, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I remember being in an Irish bar in the United States at some point and And there was a, you know, a Irish band singing. I think it was me mother. She was she was orange and me father green or something like that. <laughs> so uh, so so you are are that song. There you go. Yeah, I, I guess I am. And um, I suppose that's why I have an understanding of tribalism or clan-based approaches to the world and conflict and you know it, does, it doesn't take a genius to say well here's a person working on on peace in, in certain ways um and that's why 
But what, I think uh, a, a real issue for I think really for me that the bigger issue was class, you know, because I didn't grow up in the conventional. I mean, that's why I made that joke. Yeah. Because really, someone in, who's trying to to become a research professor, particularly in the UK, possibly, you're much better off starting from, you know, quite a landed position. It's it's a yeah. better way to start mm-hmm. rather than the scrap dash way I made it or haven't so, stage I've got to. So you you know you are, you know a world-renowned historian and you've i mean you know i read that online last night um you've you've uh (laughs) you've you've obviously you've gotten hundreds of thousands of dollars in grant money you are uh, prolific when it comes to your publication um do you still find yourself you know when you're at places like dartmouth for example um where you just kind of feel a little bit out of your element because you're surrounded by people whose experiences were so different than yours God, no, my Lord. I might have been brought up poor, but I was brought up phenomenally culturally arrogant. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I yeah. express it to you. You know, we we had no money, but, you know, we were Irish. We, we considered ourselves, I don't know, I can't express it, but enormous cultural arrogance. And we, we, we had this notion of the Irish as being you know, one of the great races on earth um, and the custodians of culture and, mm-hmm. and people who who write and think and breathe in the full spectrum of colours, whereas other ethnicities, say the English, were thought of as just speaking in primary colours and thinking in primary colours, whereas we use the whole spectrum. You know, there was a, there's an enormous cultural arrogance that maybe doesn't get talked about enough, but... I think you you find the Irish everywhere, and and they have this inner glow, really, and it's from surviving colonialism, surviving famine, and um, laughter. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we, we'll laugh at pretty much anything, and that is actually a superpower and and something that will see you through. So I don't think I've I've ever been in a room where I've been intimidated on that level. The only thing that intimidates me is is violence, really. But uh, intellectually, uh, no, because that's a, a spiritual weakness, I think. But I, I, talking of Dartmouth, I did go to a party and someone said to me, Ill, you finally made it to the Ivy League. And I thought, <laughs> wow. You know, the anthropologist in me thought, that's amazing. They thought that's actually, you know, there's certain times in life I always think, you think, wow, this is like a movie, you know, yeah. where if I was writing it, someone would say that to someone else. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but like I was at high table at Oxford and someone said, oh, you're a grandma school girl, are you? And I thought, wow, that's another one for the movie. You know, <laughs> really that, you? You know? it's real. You're that stereotyped and cliched that you would dare to say that to a young woman. But there it yeah. is. Yeah, wow. So what did, what did your what did your parents do? My parents worked the land mostly. Yeah. Um, my mom was in domestic service when she left the South for a while in a great house. And my dad was a road sweeper most of the time. And they did a lot of working on the land, though, you know, uh, at Christmas, he would pull the necks of about 400 turkeys and pluck them. 
Um, I was in charge as a tiny little girl of, of putting the giblets inside the turkey. So it was a farming, farming yeah. reality. We didn't have a lot of money, but we were rich in certain other ways. You know, like uh, I grew up with a whole mountain to play on. And, you know, most of my closest relationships were with animals, you know, and um, really unsurpassingly beautiful environmental childhood uh, with my father, you know, doing things on the land. So I didn't realize at the time, but you couldn't actually do that again now, what I had grown up. Yeah. And of course, I was given an amazing name, Joy, which which means um, being in spiritual right relationship with your God. And that was uh, quite a gift, it turns out, in life, because I think they taught me that there was more to this world than, you know, what you see yeah. somehow they taught right. me that so how did all of this take you to uh to history i suppose Derry was a place where people were fighting about history all the time yeah so the streets were painted with historical symbols people dressed up historically there were dates written on the walls you know it, people lived and breathed and fought and killed each other over history so in a way, I chose not to study that history. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and um, all sides, both sides of the, the sectarian divide, harked back to a pre-colonial history, even one that went back before the Roman Empire and before the British Empire came to Ireland. And both sides claimed that ancient history. My mother is an O'Donnell of the O'Donnell clan who kind of were one of the, the O'Donnells ruled one of the kings of Ulster. And they, there was 180 kings before the British Empire angled over. So, you know, there were, there were layers of Ireland's kind of like a layered history place. So it's hard not to be a historian. You, you can't really avoid it. Yeah, I found that's one of the things that I really enjoy about being in, in Europe. And uh, I don't get it here. I don't know why, but just like that feeling of being surrounded by history. Um, Ooh, you know. I'm trying to help with that. I'm remapping the Northeast with ancient uh, indigenous place names and indigenous places of historical moment. Oh, wow. Okay. Because that notion of America being devoid of history, I mean, it's a cracker's remark, isn't it? That there's yeah. some more history in this room where I'm sitting than when you are. If you really think about it, you know, time passed for everyone. Yeah. Illusion that that didn't happen somewhere or it happened more somewhere else. Yeah. And, and I think it for me, it's it, probably because like, you know, growing up when you went somewhere like I grew up in South Carolina, you know, you would go up to North Carolina and go to Cherokee. And the image that you got there was something that even as a kid, you're like, this is this is just theme parkish. This isn't real history. Right. Um, and I think that's the problem is that it's been treated so poorly that that it, it just makes you kind of lose interest in it. There's my my two cents. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what about I mean, obviously, you've got the you've talked about being growing up in a, in a colonized environment. Um, is that what particularly made you interested in looking at uh, indigenous people in, in North America? You know, that's one reason. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but um, I I don't know that I'm that in control when I look back on my life. 
that that I knew. I mean, you know, the presupposition is that that one plans where one goes and and then the doors open and things happen. But I think for for quite a lot of us, it's um it's not like that. And I think if you write and you guys write amazing books, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I think if if you write, you spend most of your life trying to get the space and time and peace to do that. Mm-hmm. And that means you end up, you know, doing jobs, doing things that, that help you achieve that. So, you know, I could tell some fancy story, but the truth is that probably I was impelled by the desire to write and did whatever I could to get there. So when, when did that start? I mean, was that somewhere in school or when you went, decided to go to, to university? What, what, where did that get going? I remember winning some prize when I was really little about some story about a bunch of crows because, I, as you know, I, you know, I had a dear friend actually. It was a crow when I was really little <laughs> <laughs> that I nursed because he couldn't fly. I had a pet sheep as well. I was very close to animals. Anyway, so there was that, and then I had no money, as you know. And um, I remember one of the first things I did to make money was write. Mm. Um, so yeah, the, the the drive to write's always been there. How good it is is another issue, but I I do think writing is an affliction. Actually, you're kind of born with. Yeah. Can't help it whether you enjoy it or not. You just you have to write. I I feel like I I go to bed somewhat guilty every night about having not written enough, or at all. You know, many days I don't write at all, and I feel yeah. guilty about the fact that I didn't do any writing that day. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating because there's something in you that's driving it, is there? Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, you know, I know it's what I, I want to do and what I should be doing professionally. Uh, not not should, but, you know, want to do. But then so many other things get in the way. And then, you know, by the time you hit 9, 30, 10 o'clock, you're hit with that. OK, now I have a minute, but I'd really like to just go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. I really admire people who just live on beans and bread and survive and, and let nothing else stop them. Yeah. You know, and I think when you become a parent, that whole issue takes on a new dimension. Yeah. You know, one of the things I think you need to develop if you're going to write is the ability to tune everything else out. And that makes you a bit of a weirdo and yeah. also a bit... <laughs> Just you're not quite on this earth because yeah. you're in flow. They could, the psychologists call it being in flow. But the, when you're when you're really writing, and I know you guys have got there because you've written great prose, you're you're not quite cognizant of what's going on around you. And finding that level, I think that's probably what we're all addicted to. You yeah, know, meaning is coming, flowing through us, getting lost in it. Yeah, you get to that point where you get lost in it. Yeah, Doctor Feltman, it's probably in archives that you find that because you spend a lot of time in archives, don't you? Uh, yeah, I love it. That's uh, that's where I feel. Uh, you know, it, it, anyone who who loves archives gets this feeling. People are like, "How can you just go and sit there and look at that? You really lose sense of time." Um, you know, you're you're locked in, and uh, at the end of the day, you see, you know, oh, it's it's about to hit five o'clock. Um, they're going to make me start putting my stuff away. And you're just trying to get through as much stuff as you as you possibly can. That's but, also uh, where he makes all of his friends. So yeah, you know. <laughs> really, yeah. Uh, 
we just onboarded a new postdoctoral researcher and her whole job for three years is to go into archives. So we thought we better warn her about what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> because we've found that archivists are quite unusual people. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that, that's a mm-hmm. quite an unusual environment and you can lose track of time. It's really intense. You know, it's all about pencils. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, using the right caliber of pencil and, did, you know, we have to put the pages back in just the right way. I mean, I've just spent two weeks in the Nixon archive. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's a quasi-military space, you know. Yeah. Yeah, guy with the gun at the door, and yep, I found this amazing picture that Ehrlichman, a sketch he'd done of Richard Nixon. It was just a complete archival epiphany. I loved this, you know, because he was an artist, and I thought, right there's my book cover, and you know, yeah, great joy, which you could never explain to any normal person, you know, yeah. that you spent like two whole weeks, and and this was one of the greatest things you found, and yeah. Your day. I mean, we are weirdos um, on on one level, don't you think? Oh sure. yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know that that feeling when you 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 find a quote in a document and you're just already thinking about how you are going to build, you know, a paragraph around that quote, and you're just so excited. Um, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that does make us a little strange. How did you end up at Nottingham? I wanted the heck out of out of Ireland. You know, they all seemed insane to me because they were shooting each other over religion, and I just wanted to get get free. And I, I, I literally, back in those days, there were grants, so you could be paid not very much, but you could be paid to go to university. So I was going mm-hmm. no matter where it was. Yeah, you know. And Nottingham was an enormous shock for me because of the scale of the buildings. Yeah. Because I had spent much more time outdoors and, you know, with animals and in fields and in woods. So the shock of that and the shock of not being able to feel the wind or, you know, the air, all, all of that, I find very shocking. And I still, I'm still not terrifically good directionally in big cities. So, but yeah. that's that's interesting because so many of the people we've talked with and, and, and frankly, for Brian and I included, you know, a lot of us just we, we end up where we got in. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we end up where we got in. That's that's where we went. And, you know, and, and you, you did what you did and, mm. and moved on to the next thing. So it's it's like you said earlier, which I think was very, uh, very insightful. There really isn't much of a plan. It's just kind of reacting to things. Yeah. Uh, and, and opportunities. Right. Uh, and and that's, that's how we end up where we're at. But yeah, I love your juxtaposition of, of going up where you did and, and then being in a, in a city like like Nottingham and not having the wind. And you probably don't hear much sheep there. If you do, there, there must be something wrong. <laughs> if you're right, <laughs> there must be a problem. <laughs> but um, well, look, let's move on to, to your your your. Your, your current book, uh, which which we note that in your background, back on the bookshelf, it is displayed back there. I can see it, Brian. Can you? Yeah. It's it's right right over her. Oh, her okay. Left. Yeah. There you go. There we go. Yeah. Okay. I see that one. Yeah. Over, over Joy's left soldier back, shoulder back there on the, on the shelf. Yeah. Okay. So um, what is the other thing next to it? What's on the shelf next to it? What is oh, that? Oh, that? Yeah. That's made by a friend of mine called Ken Maracle. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we've been working with a Mohawk recently. Okay. And he gave us some gifts. And oh, that okay. Yeah. drum that you fill with water and and beat. And above yeah. it, there's a rattle that he's made too. They're exquisitely beautiful, actually. Okay, I can see that on the top there laying there. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. across yeah. it, yeah. Somewhere yeah. else in the house, there's a wampum belt that was made as a gift to us as well. Yeah. So it's a real honor. Yeah, yeah cool. absolutely. Well, look, let's talk about uh, Frank Pruitt. Uh, one, how, how did you get to this? How, how did you find this story? Uh, right. Well, I was doing something called the Cambridge Companion to Native American Indian Literature way back sometime in the early 90s. And within that, somebody a lot smarter than me wrote a very good chapter all about Frank Pruitt. And I was editing it and I thought, yeah, this doesn't sound right. This, you know, this really doesn't, you know, there's there's got to be more to this. Someone and, uh, stole Brad Pitt out of Legends of the Fall. And <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyway, so time went by and I, th I got a grant. And then I went and the more I looked into him, the more interesting he got. He became this kind of talented Mr. Ripley figure. And you can see from this picture, he, you know, he was a bit of a lover boy, good looking. Yeah. And um, he just, he... I, I I believe right. I mean, I've gone done two biographies now. I think he kind of haunted me for a bit, and he wanted his story told, and it was unpleasant telling his story because his life was just terrific, and he suffered terrible trauma and all that there. But he taught me a great deal across time, and um, I I just. I think the greatest luxury you can give yourself intellectually in life is to research what attracts you rather than what's strategically important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I was saying to a young person now, you want a great career, research Lincoln, research the presidency, win one of these big prizes, get yourself into the Ivy League, you know, start from that stately home in Surrey or <laughs> or the great big cottage by the lake in America or, you know, be rich. That helps a lot. And do you know what I mean? But intellectually, if you're able to study what is truly new, what the road less traveled, the thing that hasn't already been worked to death. That I think it's it's like um, going out with who you like or marrying who you like. It's an enormous luxury, and if you can do that in life, I think it's it gives you rewards that are intangible and enormous. So he's in that bracket for me. And and for our listeners who who aren't familiar, I mean, this is a guy who goes over to the Western Front is is almost blown up he's buried um you know it sounds like barely gets out um but he's never the same he's traumatized to the point that he creates this identity for himself as being at least partially indigenous right he is not indigenous at all according to his family he was thought of as being indigenous until very recently and he impostered or pretendiend yeah modern yep, yep, yep. yeah to great effect and uh, you know was a kind of heartthrob of, of the british elite you know he was published by virginia wolf and he hung about in stately homes and had a rare old time and was the lover of siegfried sassoon and knew robert graves and you know he had a great a great time but he 
was blown up twice, blew off blown off a horse, serious back injuries. He was buried alive a second time, didn't think he'd make it out. And that was just horrific, you know, he thought he was dead. And he writes these poems about clawing his way out and you know, his lungs full of stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's really, obviously, that's what did it for him. And then he ends up with all the classic PTSD symptoms, the jabbering and the being easily triggered and um, heavy, heavy dissociation. And his poetry is all about that trauma, which is what I find fascinating that he was writing about how to recover from being overwhelmed by violence and suffering. Yeah. I thought that was really unusual because we don't think about that in the military context, although it is core to it. We don't we don't have a history of it. We don't have intelligent thinking about it. And I think the taking on a phony identity is a symptom of the trauma rather than that being the main story. Although when the book came out, there was all these media types wanting to make TV series or exploring it for a film and all this, because that's what they liked, the idea mm -hmm. of this Ripley figure pretending, which he did. You know, he, he did the whole thing, riding around topless on a bright sienna red horse and, you know, having love affairs with everybody who moved of both sexes. You know, he, he really had that dimension to him. But I think it's the thought that he puts in to war and he's not the conventional kind of war is bad poet either from the first world war which i also find absolutely fascinating to say the whole story is is amazing and it you know to what extent and this is i may be still in bill's question is this a, a one-off i mean is this a unique story i mean have you found any other cases of anyone having a similar experience? Well, th uh, there's a chapter on that, on, on Grey Owl in particular, and Long Lance, who, who had all been through the war. And it does seem to be that looking for another identity, a place of psychic safety, especially in the romantic primitivist ideal of the indigenous, is a bit of a theme. Uh, a lot of these guys had suffered in war and had decided that their identities just weren't worth having and this world was not worth having so let's play basically i think that's that's definitely you could make a case for that and i do to some extent you can look at this as part indigenous history i think to an aspect environmental history i mean there, there's a literary history aspect to it as well as military history and it kind of gets to it's something we've we've talked about a lot on this podcast is is labeling right so one i want to ask you how do you label yourself um as a historian and why uh but two you know for for the book itself you know what kind of work did you need to do because i'm assuming this was a fairly new field for you to get into especially with, you know, combat, trauma, uh, PTSD, you know, things like that. And, and how, what kind of work did it take to, to kind of get, it, get your head around that stuff, at least, you know, uh, intellectually and academically? You guys are good. You're, you're really, you really ask the questions that get right in there. 
Wow. Brian writes them. I just, oh, I just had lived them. The level of that question. Uh, what was the first one? The first question. It's like, how do you label yourself as, as a historian? Well, they put me on committees and things to do with interdisciplinarity. Because, yeah. Because I am um, this, you know, the Germans have this word. I can't pronounce it, but it's a sheep that you can milk and that produces beef at the same time. And it's a it's a joke in, in German culture that it's a thing that does everything. All right. I got to think. Yeah, about Brian's looking this up. He's I got to figure out up. what this is. <laughs> or milk or something. Oh, I forget what it is. It does make for risk because there's a danger of a clangor. Erlegende. Mm -hmm. E I E R L E G E N D E. E I R E L E G E N D E. E I E R L E G E N D E. Okay, so that would be Aya Legenda. Um, which Aya Legenda. Aya Legenda. Um, an egg laying wool milk sow. That's me. Yeah, an egg laying. Aya Legenda. Okay, good Aya Legenda. <laughs> a rare breed indeed you ah no, wait wait i mispronounced that now that i look at the meaning of it it's aya legenda because it is aya legenda uh, something that that lays eggs okay That's i got gotcha. you okay all right good stuff i learned something new about the german language today thank you that really <laughs> makes me feel great i never thought i'd teach you anything about german culture <laughs> No, the re reason I ask is because I, I, what really attracts me to your work a lot is just the diversity of it, that, that you do, you're not afraid to take on different subjects and everything. Yeah. And a lot of that is just in part because, you know, as historians, we have the skills to do that, right? And so I'm thinking of someone like a friend of the pod, Greg Dadis out at San Diego State, who's a very prominent Vietnam War scholar. You know, he's done stuff on Westmoreland. And, and then he hauls off and does this book on men's adventure magazines and depictions of war and all that as, 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 a, as an influence on people's expectations, young men's expectations of going to war in Vietnam uh, called Pulp Vietnam. Uh, you know, and of course, it deals with, he has to deal with gender theory and, and things like that. So you're getting into these other realms that you got to learn about that you, you mentioned risk, right? That, that you can set yourself up for, for failure. I just got through reading Andrew Orr's uh, really interesting book. He's at Kansas State. Uh, it's called the, the, about the gay girl hoax uh, in Syria, in Damascus back in 2011, when uh, this lesbian woman was American Syrian was supposed, supposedly abducted in, in Damascus by the, the Syrian secret police and there's all this uproar and, you know, Obama's like, we got to find her. We got to do this, right? All this national media attention. And it turned out to be a hoax put on by this this American guy in Scotland who's a medieval historian. But but he wanted to point out that, that we want to feel good about ourselves as Americans and Westerners, that we represent anti-colonialism, uh, anti-racism, uh, you know, the, 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 the we support, you know, uh, individuality, self-expression, right, and all of that, and and that we're we're hypocrites about this, you know, because of the Islamophobia and homophobia and all these other things, and that's what the guy was getting at. But it played everybody like a, like a pure sucker. But anyway, Andrew wrote a book on this. This guy is a, is a historian of the French army in the interwar period, 
and he does some stuff with gender and, and the French army, you know, women and, and, and identity and things like that. But he just entered a whole new realm of stuff to write this but, book. But let's be honest, what he's really interested in is truth between grand narratives. You know, he's, he's working in that in that space the, the, when grand narratives like tectonic plates yeah. shift over one another. And the, the other thing I wanted to say to that was that um, one of the great lessons you get from indigenous history and studying colonialism is the sense of deep time mm -hmm. and our jobs in society the idea of the historian like colonialism it has a beginning and an end it was not ever thus you know yeah. we weren't always in these little silos and you know the what a historian looked like and thought like and how they behaved has changed, so we don't necessarily have to stay in the mold. I know that um, the job market and, and so on shapes us to some extent, but yeah. you know that thing about go where the puck's going? Right. To some extent, you need to think outside of those structures and frameworks in order increasingly to stay employed now and to stay fresh and to keep yourself interested. You know, the idea that we could plow the same furrow as our supervisors for 40, 50 years, if you think about it, yeah, not really that generative uh, a notion, especially when culture and society and technology is moving like a rocket. You know, yeah. things are changing yeah. so fast. Universities and their space within culture is changing, you know, like yourselves, you know, we're increasingly being asked to, to do what the Egalenda does, you know, which is <laughs> lay eggs and milk and whatever, all the other things are. I must learn that word probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's, you know, we, we mentioned the the different books that you've written, but, you know, I mean, like, you know, you know indigenous people in Freemasonry. I mean, it's, you know, it's, uh, you really have done a great job of just kind of going where things lead you. And, uh, you know, some people would look at something like that and be like, oh, yeah, that, you know, Freemasonry. And but I mean, you, you find that it, it's meaningful and that it says something about not only indigenous people, but then also the the organizational, you know, the, the Freemasons. Well, you know where that came from, from being on the ground, because I did that book on Parker mm -hmm. and his daughter Martha was kind enough to show me into his room which she kept like a kind of shrine and it was full of pre-masonic symbols and growing up like I did on on John Ford Westerns this did not gel at all oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah with my idea of what an indigenous person should have as his bedroom do you know the what and every time I hit what I am just fascinated. I need to find out why. And then I realized that Freemasonry was one of these sanctuaries for indigenous people across time. And the Masons are really welcoming and keep enormous libraries and archives that no one touches. Yeah. And they keep enormous dress up rooms. And one of the things they dress up as is ancient indigenous figures. And that whole experience of researching that going to philadelphia and san francisco and freemasons welcoming me into their homes and showing me their artifacts and i learned a great deal 
that you could never learn and there were no very few female toilets but other than that they were completely <laughs> welcoming and i know that that's a really bizarre bizarre book yeah but for a lot of indigenous folk and masons it's quite important because it's a history that was it's just been yeah. ignored. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't fit the stereotype at all you know it's not the right on kind of history they, they you know that, that's not what's what god right it sounds just like jennifer middlestat you know walking down the street and overhears a conversation yeah between army an army recruiter on his cell phone and a recruit right and suddenly yeah. whiz bang this idea you know i got uh, yeah. i gotta find out more about this it's just serendipity yeah yep. we should take our little break we've been at yeah. it for a bit Okay, Joy, you are clearly are an accomplished teacher. Uh, Brian was able to dig that out uh, of your of your scant uh, internet presence. Uh, that that we, we have figured out that you you are a very accomplished teacher. And you know, I actually don't believe in teaching at all. Okay, that's I don't that's the question now. <laughs> yeah, now we're right. yeah. I, I don't think you I'm, can teach I'm listening. <laughs> you can't teach anybody anything. You really can't. All you can do is create conditions where they decide they want to learn something. Yeah, you sure. Know, I think working with animals teaches you this pretty quick. You know, they don't want to do something, they're not going to do it. But know. see, that flies in the face of our assessment people. They, they don't yeah. like that. because Yeah, because how, how can you assess that idea, that approach to, quote unquote, not teaching, <laughs> but cre creating those conditions where they can learn? How well, do you assess the art that, of right? non-doing is a is a great art, I think. Yeah, I mean, right. No one ever said to me, you know, write a book. It's it's, it's all it's that feeling of guilt that the thing creating that that you were talking about, um, Doctor Feldman. It's that whole thing of creating a self perpetuating desire. Yeah, in, in someone, sure. and uh, the. Maybe the, not everyone is ready for it. Maybe not everyone wants to do it. Maybe you spark, you try to spark one thing and you spark a different thing. Mm -hmm. you know, teaching is actually a very, very, very important thing to do. And I think uh, all these this emphasis on processes kills it a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, I, absolutely. I had this I had this discussion um, yesterday and this this kind of this goes back to one of the reasons that I, I wanted to ask this question is because in the United States and I think to to some extent in the UK as well, you know, we're seeing fewer and fewer students in our history classes. Uh, history is is not as important to the curriculum as it used to be. Uh, and so, you know, one of the questions that we really struggle with is like, what do we do? to engage students in the classroom, to to make them understand the relevance of the past, the relevance of history. And I was talking to my students about this yesterday, and I have some education majors, and I said, you know, I, I was an education major as an undergrad, but what I found is that you, you don't know anything about teaching until you just start doing it, and you just figure out what works for you. And so you can take 15, you know, classes on pedagogical methodology or whatever, whatever, and and at the end of the day, it's good to know what Bloom's taxonomy is or whatever you know the, that, the catchphrase. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. Well, yeah. No, it's not. I mean, it's I'm good teasing. To know, I'm teasing. Yeah, to, good good to know what it is, right? Yes, but at yes. the end of the day, you it's 
you develop your style. And I think what what Joy was saying is absolutely correct. You the best we can do is create an environment where people want to learn. Right. Um, and 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 want to do the work themselves because it, it really is getting students to to do the work that that is required of of you know learning. Yeah, you really know what's working when they're teaching you. Yeah. You know, when they're emailing you at 10 o'clock at night going, did you know this and that? Yeah. Thing? Have you read that? And you're going, okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but then you know that, that you know, the spark's been lit, the fire's lit. Well, so much for all those teaching awards, Joy. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> I would love to, if, if like when you were presented with one of those awards and that was your response, that ah, teaching, it's not really, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could I could dress all that up in theory if you want. No, no, we, <laughs> no, we, we, we like to centered teaching approaches and dynamic interact. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can I can I can make it sound pedagogical if you want. But yeah, that's, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> well, even so much of it is I think we do things, but we do things because we think it's what we're supposed to do. Like I have colleagues who use these online programs where students read and then they're supposed to go in and and ask a discussion question and respond to it. And, and they're like, well, the student, we have to have discussion. And I said, who no, you told don't. you that? Yeah, Why? No, you don't. Why do we have to have online discussion? Whoever told you that that is what you're supposed to be doing? Um, but someone did clearly. Somebody and, from the Center for <laughs> Teaching Excellence. Yeah. Misnamed. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Back to your, your work on Pruitt and, and you know, dabbling in, in, in the military history arena. How has how your engagement been with military historians? How have you found that? Well, the most meaningful was going to West Point and talking to their Department of History. Yeah. They were, I was invited there by a major who was uh, indigenous. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was really crazy because... West Point's a very militarized piece. Yeah. And um, we stayed at that hotel there, that department. Yeah, the fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's a heavy enough place. We <laughs> 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 you know, like, were really aware. It's hard to express, you know, big signs saying no protesting and your rights do not apply here. And, you know, yeah. that was fascinating. And that major showed us Custer's, um, grave and mm -hmm. things and it was just so interesting to see the military indigenous reality from the inside and then it was interesting for me being you know a european person to lecture in a room where it said in the event of a live shooter this is what you should do <laughs> you know <laughs> and i thought ah I thought I got away from that, but no, yeah. nope. obviously must have them loose here and this is how you respond. And so that was, that was amazing actually being at West Point and my family were with me. My son was like, I think about six and he was taking on his own little tour of the museum and there's a fascinating lot of Vietnam stuff there. By there the way. is. Yeah. The museum's great. Yeah. That that's a place. Definitely. I think it had a big impact on him because, uh, He'd never experienced anything like that before. Hmm. So, what was the question again? My experience of military. Well, just your engagement yeah. with military, his other military historians. I mean, how, how does your work been received, or or how have you well, interacted? There's a bunch of people in the back of the book who I respect who are proper, what I call proper um, 
military stories like Jay Winter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Paul Gray, who wrote the you know, counterwave about the poetry of the First World War. Mm -hmm. But I mean, my concern really was about what there's a chapter on how what the experience of combat was from a, the point of view of what's likely to tip you over the edge. Right. Oh, yeah. The fleas and the mice and the rats and the, the being in the mud and, and all of that. So I have to say that I kind of cherry picked the writing on the First World War that linked to trauma. Sure. And my concern really was not to make a, a massive error because you are, you know, in someone else's territory, as it were. Yeah. But I find that um, you military historian people are lovely. You know, you're 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 not territorial, funnily enough, and you're open to different perspectives and, and notions and kind as well about proofreading stuff and, and learning. Allowing oh, nice. To yeah. Learn. yeah, good. So that was really useful. I mean, I was interested in things that military historians often aren't interested in, like what it's like to be repatriated and psychological distance traveled and how he coped with trauma. Yeah. How he came out of seeing ghosts everywhere and dead people everywhere and how he managed to quiet that. He goes to Oxford, does a degree. Um writes this amazing poetry that that's that's all about he he walks a lot as anyone he needs to psychologically he probably does and he he's one beautiful poem for example where he talks about walking uh, on the borders between Scotland and England in a place called Kelso and he he talks about walking from you know that darkness that falls over a mountain because of the clouds mm -hmm. yeah He's walking from bright sun into the dark. And it's obviously a metaphor for coming out of fear and depression as a result of war and what it's like to to make it through the veil to the other side. And at the same time, there's a layer of meaning there about what it's like to go from the big veil of being alive to the little veil, the bigger veil of being dead. And he's talking about those making those transitions because he felt he died already because he was buried alive and psychologically was so overwhelmed that he he accepted death. So I find all of that really fascinating, and uh, ha it hadn't been discussed before. Yeah, interesting. And the other thing was how war as a technology impacted what he did after afterwards as a veteran. Because he, he comes back and does things like help bring in the combine harvester and rationalize farming. And then, you know, he starts a farming magazine and yeah. all of that. How he related to land and to nature as a result of seeing it blown to smithereens and, and, oh, yeah. and, and experiencing all of it from gas to explosions. So I've actually walked through Kelso. We, we we did the Borders Abbey Way a, a couple of summers ago, and mm -hmm. went you know Melrose, Kelso, all 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 through there, uh, Dryborough, et, et cetera, and it's, it's beautiful. Life, it? Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, re really, really nice. But I did not have that sort of an experience though, and which is probably a good thing. That's a good um, thing. <laughs> yeah. But but it is beautiful, so I can see why why he would have been there. Absolutely. Well, he was sent there. He was sent. Oh, he was sent there. Yeah, to a hospital to recover because. Okay. Oh, interesting. 
you know, the, the jabbering and the hand movements and the, yeah, he was in terrible shape mentally. Hmm. When wow. he walked, he wrote poems about seeing elves digging graves, and oh, he was in a really bad place mentally. Oh, did did he ever do any art, or just poetry? Just poetry. Just poetry, so he didn't draw or anything, because that no, would have been interesting. No, he was drawing a lot and painted by quite famous people. Yeah, right. He hung out with Duncan Grant and, you know, really quite famous English painters, modernists. Yeah, but these are the, but Pruitt and, and a lot of these poets, um, Graves and so on, they all fought again. You know, yeah. they saw it as a task of work to be done. Right. I mean, point in the book that the actual numbers of absolute pacifists are, are pretty small. Yeah, I deal with the psychiatric uh, theories on that because um, one of the things that trauma does is stop you sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sleep's held to have um, helped you process the REM level of sleep. Right. And once you're not able to do that, then you can tip into psychosis. And quite a few of them did. I don't know, Brian, we need to do some rapid fire. Yeah, we could sit here and do this all day long. And, right, it's good stuff. And, and, I'm, I'm yeah. already thinking about using this book in my uh, World War One class I'm teaching in the spring. So, uh, yeah, very good. I'm really honored. I really, yeah, very good. I, and and if I if I do it, um, I'll, I'll I may uh, try to get you to zoom in and you know chat with the students for a few minutes. I am at your service. All right. All right. So, uh, Joy, you may be familiar with this. We we ask you ten questions. They're kind of all over the place. Uh, give us a quick, uh, good response, and just be mindful that because it's our show, uh, we get to judge and comment on your responses. So, okay, <laughs> All right. Um, this this is actually a really uh, relevant question for you, based on what you told me earlier. Question one: What is the title of your autobiography? Oh, uh, it's called "What Can You Do." Okay. All Which right. Free as everyone said after there was an explosion or somebody was crazy or funny, they said, "Ah, what can you do?" What and that do? is the question. What can you do politically? Okay, that's a good one. Very good. Okay, um, you get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? I was thinking you might ask this, <laughs> and I haven't listened to John Prine since he died because I've oh. been. And a John Prine all my life. And yeah. So I did in preparation for this thing here I'm doing. And uh, I listened to I Remember Everything, which is his last song, mm-hmm. and ended up in floods of tears because oh, yep. he has this metaphor. He said, I remember swimming pools full of butterflies that slipped right through the net. Yeah. And I just thought, my God, you know, you, you only know three chords, but you can write. You yeah. Know? Yeah. No, uh, you know, I said Robert Earl Keane, you know, the other day, Brian. Yeah. Uh, Brian would have been up there. Right up there. Yeah. yeah I mean, those, absolutely. Yeah. Th- those, it's, you know, some people just have such a gift with putting words together that, yeah. uh, you know, you can only be in awe of what they're able to do. Yep. So that yeah. you were like, you're working on remembrance, aren't you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Swimming pools full of butterflies that slip yeah. through. Okay. What's your favorite podcast? Other than this one, of course. Yeah. Other than this one, this is going to weird you out. Lex Friedman. And uh, my partner really doesn't like it because I listen to um, tech nerds talking about being tech nerds and coding. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I wow. find them absolutely fascinating. Guys okay. like Mark, Marcus Andreessen and, and all these these tech guys and their their approach to the world and how they see the future. Does it does it scare you or comfort you? Uh, or a little both. Probably some of the brightest people on earth. So part of me is thinking, mm, that's really interesting. And big part of me is thinking, I don't understand coding and why do you care? Yeah. And another part of me is thinking, they're planning a future world where we're neurolinked, where there's cobots, and where to some extent the human world, I mean, we talked, started with me rhapsodying about growing up in nature and the sky full of birds and lots of insects and teeming with nature that world's gone gone and the yeah. world they foresee is completely we've given up on on the corporal kinship with animals all of that seems to go on it's, it's a meta world hmm. or that abyss with them well on that uplifting note uh next question hey you study war man <laughs> well yeah that's true yeah no, you're right you're right fair fair point fair point so uh native american indian indigenous peoples or something else what do you use i use indigenous now because it's it's the word that was used but but really if you're ever talking to anyone indigenous use their tribal name and ask who their clan is, who their okay. people are. You know, the way I talk to you about the O'Donnell clan, yeah. most indigenous people, it's very respectful to talk about their status within their people. And their okay, people. so that's interesting because we just yeah. watched, uh, finished watching on, I can't remember what's on now, but a series called Dark Dark Winds. I think there's two seasons now, but it's based on old Tony Hillerman novels set in the Navajo but they, that, that's a big part of it is there's always some newcomer comes in and they ask, you know, what is your clan? I like that. Yeah. Which means you got to know your history, right? You got to yeah. know right. Right. who your people are. And right. Yeah. You no, you could know that story. You could step in it big time if you didn't watch out. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Interesting. Okay. Um, what are you binge watching? Uh, what am I binge watching? Uh or even just what are you watching? Well, I'm a mom. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm watching a thing with my 14-year-old, which is about, you know, I spent a lot of time last summer in Alaska, and he really wants to go. And there's this show, a reality show about Alaska, where they make them survive with nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And my son is really into cooking, you know, and martial arts. And he likes... Um, he likes the wild and all that stuff. All right? that, all of that applies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we watch that, and it's it's mommy son time. So, <laughs> you know. But what I watch for myself, um, what's the last really good thing I watched? Well, kind of every couple of years I rewatch Justified to make me laugh. Oh, I love that. Show. Oh yeah, Justified's yeah. so good. Yeah, Raylan's done a reprise. Yeah. Well, I've got to watch that to see if it's any good. Yeah. yeah. Classic Western, is it not? Yeah. Um, Elmore Leonard, may he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Another fantastic writer. You no. Know, 
All so right. I have to ask you, have, have, speaking of the Alaska connection, have you watched Northern Exposure? Oh, yeah, way back in the day. You know, we're, my, my friends I stay with in Statesboro, we're, we are re-watching the whole thing, all six seasons. Are you? My, it's, yeah. It doesn't really stand up. I mean, like... It does. I think it does. You think it does? I, I think it's amazing. The writing is so far ahead of its time. It's Ted Lasso-ish. It's, oh, yeah. It's really clever, and I, it was probably pretty good um, of course you but, know it wasn't filmed in alaska right no it was in in, in washington yeah 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 um but uh no we enjoyed it we're almost we're almost done actually um i was like this summer uh with uh, working with clinket people and um we, we got to sit in rhyme one evening and and this woman an elder i really respect she, she was telling me about when she was young and she went out and way out with a out on the cold Inuit places, you know, and she met some people who weren't there, who were invisible. Oh. She was deadly serious. Yeah. And uh, Northern Exposure covered all of that in its way. Yeah, it yeah. did. It did. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Then was it because we got to get moving, but uh, what about Reservation Dogs? Have you watched that? Yeah. Uh, my partner's really into that. And yeah. uh, I find it a bit cutesy. Yeah, I mean, like life, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because uh, life on reservations is actually tough, really, really mm -hmm. tough. Yeah. And it's so hard to make a narrative that's enjoyable out of stuff that's that's hard. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, if you, you pay know, attention to it, though, they, it, I think they hit that. I think they hit that. OK, you know, you think? Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, though, they have to balance. But, you know. It's one of the few programs I've watched in a long time where where each episode hits the range of emotions. It's it's I mean, fascinating. In Thirty minutes. It's crazy how how they do that. You can have more honest stuff like that that coexists at the same as Johnny Depp doing the whole Sauvage perfume thing. Yeah. Oh my and gosh. It, there's oh. a film coming out, the um, Killer Flowers of the Killer Moon. Mm -hmm. that's got a wonderful indigenous actress in it but at the same time there's all the problematics are still there as well it's yeah, amazing yeah. how we can have this cognitive dissonance going on well we're going to get that in a, in a sec brian you got one more question what are you reading for pleasure i don't read for pleasure i gotta tell you okay i I'm, really, I... I mean, I'm, I love going to the hairdresser because you get to read magazines about Kim Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like turning my mind right off and getting fascinated by the dumbest, stupidest, most pathetically daft thing you can find. I like, yeah. Because <laughs> I read a lot of quite complex stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here's some I, book right, right on the desk called The Alignment Problem. And I'm thinking, I don't want to read that really. But <laughs> it looks pretty thick too. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, when I read for me, I, I want to read. I write actually. I'm more likely to write my short stories or my dumb memoir or, you know, something that's creative. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's probably sad, isn't it? I should be reading. No. 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 no it's understandable. I'm, I'm, yeah. I know. Totally. When you read, when you read for a living, sometimes you don't want to do that. Yeah. In your free time. Yeah. You do not. Sometimes I really like staring into space like a moron. I really enjoy that. <laughs> Sitting okay. quietly with no one around me. 
for our conversation so far, I'm really interested how you're going to answer this. Give us, give us a one-sentence review of Dances with Wolves. Uh, enlightenment golf. Okay. All right. Interesting. I, I asked this question because... Fast I... actor being the wolf? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See, I read I read one of your reviews of the uh what the banshees of uh what's it called? Inisharan. Inisharan. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, matter. first of all, Bill, don't ask her about the film. She hated it. But okay. she said the she said the best actor in the film was the donkey. The donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read that review, I said, Okay, I gotta I gotta give her a chance to uh to put some of that magic on the show there. So I wrote a whole book because of some film so annoyed me. What was it? Into the Wild, where the guy goes out, young lad goes out. And oh yeah, yeah. The based on Krakauer's book about that kid. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That. The Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Never yeah. occurred to him to ask the Denali people, like, well, you know, how do you live out here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Occurred. Don't eat these mushrooms. I, right. I'm just, I'm just gonna sit in the bus. I, <laughs> right. I, I'm looking for something lost in my soul. Oh, oh man! Jeez, yeah. Very All right, good. what what was the best decade of your life? The next one. Death. The next one. That, okay, my I like life's that. been on an upward journey yeah. since, since birth. It's been uphill from birth. That's and I great. was born at a very young age. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you uh, you you you've listened to a couple of these so you know that bill and i are both big fans of american barbecue um bill as a texan prefers brisket which is beef um and uh, as a south carolinian i am uh, a fan of pork so for you you've spent some time in the u.s um do you prefer the brisket or the pork you know we started when we were laughing when we started that i outsource certain things <laughs> in my life and food is one of them. I have not cooked in many years. Oh, uh, my wow. partner okay. does it all. He's a fabulous cook. My son's an amazing cook and baker. I don't even think about it. I sit down and there's always lovely food. <laughs> so I wouldn't know. To be honest. And they probably say, don't eat that. You don't like that. And I thought, okay. So, well, I'll change up the question for you then. Um, if If your partner and your son say, we're going out to dinner tonight, where are we going, mom? Where are you taking them? Well, if I could go anywhere, there's a place in Juneau in Alaska called Deckhand Dave's, and they do <laughs> the most amazing fish tacos. Deckhand and Dave's. Deckhand Dave's, and it, they get it right. They get the fish right out of the water, right yeah. by, and got it right there, and it's bliss on earth. I like and it. I, I like that. Union, yeah. Which is Alaska. Yeah. So Deccan Dave's. All right. Shout I'll accept. I will. I will accept that as a substitute. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Deccan. Shout Dave's. out to Deccan Dave's. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Joy, this is uh this has been great. We really appreciate you talking uh, with us, and you know you uh, you you have no fear of of, of covering uh, a wide range of topics, and uh, I, I appreciate that. And um, your book. I know you've got another one coming out. We mentioned on uh, on the green movement, um, and I'm sure that that's going to be great. And just uh, you know, further evidence of your your willingness to kind of jump around and uh, go from place to place. So uh, I hope that that we can all uh, be that adventurous and and willing to uh, to kind of you know take what life gives us. Joy, if you if you need a reading recommendation, 
if you ever get a chance to read something for fun, I really think you need to read Billy Connolly's autobiography, Windswept and Interesting. <laughs> Billy Connolly. Is he still alive? He's still, I think he's still kicking. He's Good got, par- he's got Parkinson's, he's, he, but he's, he's, uh, he's still, he's still around, but Windswept oh. and Interesting. Windswept. I, I think, I think you might make some connections. I think, I think, yeah. Yeah, we're 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 going to be looking for this uh, this yeah. autobiography. You definitely yeah. need to to write that. Yeah, <laughs> yep. It's been a real honor, guys. You guys got to keep doing this because you are so so good at it. And it thank just you. Makes, well, thank you. Military history fun. Awesome. That's well, what we want to do. do. Yeah. yeah. No, we we we're we're having fun doing it. We never dreamed we'd be still doing this. We thought we'd yeah. just do a handful and. That'd be it. But uh, here we are, seventy something episodes later, and yeah, um, I don't know why you're such a good team, but like, keep doing the voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> nah, we're good buds. No, <laughs> thank we're, you. We're, yeah, we're, yeah. Brian, Brian, Brian is my my new uh, my work spouse at Georgia Southern. Yeah, retired yeah. a few years ago, so Brian is my new work spouse. Yeah, we genuinely um, like each genuinely yeah, like each yeah, other. Yeah, we, so, we, uh, we, yeah. we we love each other. So it's it's a good it's a good good combo. So that's fun. But anyway, look, enjoy your, your evening and, and thanks again. And uh, this was, this is really interesting. This it was, was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed really, it. Yeah. This was good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, take, take care, care guys. Enjoy. All right. Bye-bye. See you, Brian. Bye-bye, Bill.